Hey, we are studying uh, through the book of Exodus. Uh, if you're newer to our community, you may not realize the, the Bible is like really important to us and really important to our faith in Christ, like the whole thing. The 77% that makes up the Old Testament and like the 23% that makes up the New Testament. We believe that the whole Bible is actually telling one story that directs us directly to Christ. And so you'll notice that most of what you attend here at the Vineyard, uh, we are looking at, we're studying together, uh, we're working to practically apply the scriptures uh, to our daily lives. We want to live out the reality of what the Bible teaches. So last week, we gave away Bibles to our third graders. We want to encourage them at this kind of stage in their lives when they're learning to read on their own, to read the Bible for themselves. It's kind of a pivotal development Deal. And I want to encourage all of us to be regularly reading the Bible. So uh, I received a text from a parent this week. There's a picture we can put up on the screen. Uh, it came with this picture, and uh, the dad wrote, we are encouraging him to highlight what he likes. Apparently, chapter four is really good. <laughs> well done, Tristan. It's amazing. I love it. So today, we are continuing our study through the book of Exodus. Let me just set this up a little bit. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for many generations, nearly 400 years. Uh, there were lots of old stories about how God had moved with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generations ago. But for the past few centuries, 400 years, they've lived under an oppressive rule of an Egyptian leader and their gods, and they had very little insight into God's character, what he's really like, what he cares about, how to live life connected to him. The relationship between God and Israel had mostly gone silent. And in the book of Exodus, what we see is we see this move kind of from the absence of God to the presence of God. We see this move of kind of not a lot of communication with God to a lot of communication with God. And through these really well-known stories, we have God teaching his people his name, giving clear guidelines about how to live with one another, how to live in their neighboring communities. He's reminding them of how they got to where they are, and he's giving them a vision of a really flourishing future. And along the way, he stresses the uh, in incredible importance of aligning every part of their lives and their priorities around himself. And honestly, today, I think we need the exact same lessons. We need the exact same lessons. In our current cultural context, we need the God of the scriptures to reveal himself to us. Because just like for them, it is so easy to confuse the God of the scriptures with the gods of our age or the gods of the place that we happen to live. It's super tempting to allow ourselves to be shaped by cultural norms that we live in, rather than allowing us to be shaped by the one we claim to worship. Last week, John was talking about the 10 plagues, uh, actually nine of the 10 plagues that God brought on the Egyptians, and we looked at those plagues through the lens of decreation. It's a really great message. I, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I'd go online and look at that. And what you'll see is how God was allowing Pharaoh's hardness of heart to undo the order, the safety, the provision of the original creation. Today, I want to look at the same plagues, 
but I want to look at the plagues through the lens of idolatry. God is confronting the idolatry of the Egyptians, and honestly, he's confronting all of our idolatry. And why does God confront our idolatry so strongly? It's because he dearly loves you. And he knows, he made, he's the one who made you, he knows that when you align your life around anything else, it brings destruction, it brings pain, it brings loneliness, it actually destroys our lives. You know, when you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, that 23% part of the Bible, you'll notice that Jesus is doing the same thing. He's living and he's inviting his followers into a completely different way of life organized around him. The apostle John wrote about it like this, John 1. In him, meaning in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. Jesus, in him, is a light that lights the way for all of us. I like to think that's why we put up Christmas lights. We're celebrating Jesus as the light. That's why I start listening to Christmas music in February. I'm like a like hundred albums in now. It's amazing. And they're all singing about Jesus. You guys should try it. It's really cool. Right? I hear, I, I heard some of you, bah humbug. Do you know what happens to the Grinch, right? He gets a heart. <laughs> We'll have ministry time later. You'll love Christmas music after that. Oh, or John 10.10. 10. I got distracted there for a minute. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's the ultimate contrast. There's, there's one who's intent on stealing, killing, and destroying, but the Christ comes to give real life to the fullest extent imaginable. Or John 20. These are written, this, this is why John wrote the gospel. This is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. See, the absence of, uh, the, the opposite of that life is what's happening in Egypt. It's what our idolatry does to us. It's the way that it totally deconstructs our lives and doesn't leave anything. And the way that like, Actually, putting faith in God through Jesus brings a life that's remarkable, and it's entirely available to you and I. In fact, the whole reason this exists, the whole reason I'm here, is so that you would not only know about, but you'd experience the life of God in like a really cool way. Like that's the whole reason that we're together. It's about reorienting our lives around Jesus that we begin to experience the life that God's invited us into. And the biggest thing that gets in the way of this kind of life and all is all the other things we cling to rather than God himself. The things that we think are gonna make us happy and successful and fulfilled and secure, the Bible actually calls all those other things we cling to idols. Now the word idolatry could bring up like you might think, you know, that's only just primitive people standing around statues or totems or something else, right? But let me suggest that every culture, in fact, every family is dominated by its idols. 
Every society has its own shrines, its own places of worship where sacrifices must be made in order to hold on to, in order to procure the blessings of the good life and to ward off disaster. It doesn't matter whether they're statues, totems, or office towers, or university campuses, or shopping centers, or sports stadiums, or gyms, or studios. Think about it. We might not kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women and men are driven into depression and eating disorders because of concerns over body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are out of whack, what we do is we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting our families and our communities to get more wealth, to get more prestige. The Apostle Paul wrote, greed is idolatry. Like it's pretty clear. You want to look that up later. It's Colossians 3.5. So today I want to look at the plagues as if God is confronting the idolatry of Egypt and its Pharaoh, and I want to allow God to confront the idolatry in our lives. You guys ready? This is going to be fun. We're going to do like nine of the plagues. I'm going to save the 10th one to next week. And I want to read a portion of the story in Exodus chapter 5 to set the stage. Exodus 5, 1 and 2, it reads like this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. That always just reminds me of a really evil Dr. Seuss, the way that that's written. Pharaoh is basically saying, I don't give a rip about who Yahweh is. And he's refusing to acknowledge the God of these immigrants that he's enslaved. And as a result of their request, the pressure on their slavery increases. Remember that the plagues are a way of God introducing himself to Pharaoh from this point on. He's encouraging him. God's encouraging to pay attention to Yahweh's request to quit mistreating Israel. And so today as we go through the plagues, pay attention to two different things going on. God is confronting everything Pharaoh and the Egyptians hold on to for security. He's going to confront every idol in their lives. And then watch how Pharaoh seems to soften just enough so that the pressure of the plague lets up. And then right back, he's right back to his same self. And as you're watching for those things, watch for those things in you. Because I've noticed we all do the exact same kinds of things, right? All right. So let's begin with the first miraculous act that Moses and Aaron do in front of Pharaoh. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. Why don't you grab a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Uh, there's Bibles right there that you're in front of you. Grab one of those, uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to begin reading that. Or you can get to it on your phone, or you could be just like Moses and get to it on your tablet. See, you guys are good. This is awesome. I love it. When I can get everybody involved in a bad dad joke, then it's really good. 
We're gonna, we talk about 10 plagues, but there's actually 11 miraculous things that take place. And I wanna go back to the very first one because he's confronting something really specific in terms of the gods of Egypt and their idolatry. So Exodus chapter seven, starting in verse 10, it reads like this. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff uh, in, down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down a staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This is the first miraculous sign, the staff changing into a snake and then gobbling up all the other snakes. This is the beginning of one of the greatest confrontations in all of history. The reigning human power on earth, Egypt, and its autocratic leader, Pharaoh, versus the God who promised to rescue his people from that power and the miseries that leader had imposed on them. You know, Pharaoh was often depicted, I think we have a picture of Pharaoh here, don't we? He was often depicted with a shepherd's staff, and on his headdress is a snake. Moses arrives on the scene with a shepherd's staff that becomes a snake. Listen, snakes in Egypt were associated with royal authority. Right at the very beginning of the confrontation, God says, hey, give me your most valuable God and let me watch what I can do, right? Remember, Genesis and Exodus are also a form of what we would call Hebrew meditative literature. They build, these images build on one another. You're meant to actually think of another snake when you read this. I don't know if you remember Genesis chapter three, but there was a crafty snake in the garden who tempted the very first humans. Did God really say you can't eat anything? Of course not. God never said that to them. God said, stay away from this one thing. What if you could get wisdom on your own? What if you didn't have to wait for God to help you discern what's good and what's evil? What if you could get there totally on your own and you didn't need him anymore? That's like the very first temptation. What if you could be the boss? What if you could be in charge? What I see in this confrontation right here is God is confronting that very first snake to that snake-like suspicion that says, I think you know better than God. We're meant to reflect on that. And he's confronting in Pharaoh our desire to be in charge of our own lives. He's using the 10 plagues and this to prove to the Egyptians that he is sovereign and the things they hold to are of no account. To hammer home to the Egyptians that their gods are, you know, don't accomplish anything in their lives and that he's firmly in control of the entire process. He's in control of them, of their nation, and of their environment, which they so completely admired and worshipped in their pantheistic beliefs. God takes the things that are meant to be the specialty of their gods and turns it against them. And says, here's what happens when you don't have me at the center of your life. I think that's the thing that God does in every single one of our lives as we try to keep him at arm's length and try to decide what's good and bad on our own. And so now let's get to the first plague. 
I could talk about each of these like for hours, you could tell, uh, but we got to cruise through this. The first plague, the Nile River turns into blood. It starts in verse 14. It's a demonstration of God's sovereignty over the river that is Egypt's greatest landmark. It's their source of life. The river was a god to them. So in, in their pantheistic view of the universe, the divine actually lived in everything. The divine wasn't just, you know, didn't just create everything, but it actually lived in everything. And especially things like water that moved, water was like the essence of the divine. And so the only true God begins with the humiliation of the Nile, the great waterway, the source of life, becomes a source of death. And it happens pretty quickly. Now, here's, there are a couple of interesting things. When you think about the nine plagues, they're in groups of three, and they're all meant to interrelate. And so if you look at plague one, four, and seven, they all take place in the morning. They're all taking place in the morning, and it's someplace where Pharaoh's hanging out, and then Moses and Aaron show up with them. And you're meant to reflect on that. By the time we get to plague seven, you'll see that the intensity gets turned way up. And this plague... The Nile, all the, all the like, surface water turning to blood uh, actually lasts for seven days. You're meant to reflect back. Something else took seven days. What was that? The original creation. Decreation is starting right here. God's turning this all against them. Everything is planned, and it's going to be thorough. It's going to affect all the idols of Egypt, everything that they cling to for security. Plague number two. Lots and lots of frogs. The frogs get into everything. No person, no place, no thing is immune from its frog infestation. Even the places where they knead and bake the bread are full of frogs. Imagine your amazing sourdough and all you can smell is frogs. It's really interesting that the Egyptian magicians are able to somehow replicate by some sort of magic on a small scale what God does on a nationwide scale in both of these first two plagues. In their magic, they're providing a way out for someone like Pharaoh who already wants to doubt the exclusive power of God. They're providing a way to doubt that. Listen, if you're looking for a way to not have faith in God, it's really easy to find. You're going to find it underneath every rock, every little piece of trickery. If you're looking for a way to not have faith in God, it's really easy to find. You don't have to look far. But eventually, the trickery fades away when you can't even cook your own food or turn over in bed without there being frogs. It gets incredibly annoying in there, right? And in verse 8 of chapter 8, Pharaoh's reaction, when you look at it, what does it say? Verse 8, chapter 8. He begged for relief. He goes, I pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let you go offer sacrifices to the Lord. Here's an interesting part of the story as you read on, is that Moses and Yahweh allow Pharaoh to choose the time, the day of the frog's removal. Think about it. It's kind of brilliant on their part to say, well, when do you want the frogs to go? Because if he gets to choose the time of the frogs leaving, he knows it's not a natural consequence, and he knows his magicians had nothing to do with it, that this is 100% Yahweh. By saying, let them all be gone tomorrow, 
he realizes he's talking to somebody who's actually really in charge. That's like a brilliant move right there. It was at that point that Pharaoh should have been able to admit that there was a true, powerful God named Yahweh behind Moses' request. His refusal to believe is not due to lack of evidence. It's clearly due to stubbornness. You realize this is true for us, right? You realize this is true for us. The logic of placing your faith in the resurrected Christ is irrefutable. Hello, the resurrection. That hasn't happened to any other thing, human or not, on our planet ever. When we refuse to place our faith in Christ, it's almost never based on a lack of believable evidence. It's always based on stubbornness. When I refuse to put my faith in Christ, to even just reach out to him, it's not because the evidence isn't there. It's there. It's been written about everybody and that I've been able to find over the past couple thousand years who set out to disprove the resurrection or that Christ actually existed became followers of Jesus because the evidence is so overwhelming when people actually want to look at it. I suppose if you'd only research it on TikTok, that might not work. You have to go for real evidence. I'm only partially making fun of us. Okay, third plague. Mosquitoes or gnats. What's notably different about the third plague is the failure of the magicians. They'd been able to make it look like their staffs became uh, snakes. All their staffs got eaten, though. Uh, it, it looked as if they could change water into blood and produce frogs. But the magicians give up when it comes to doing tricks with mosquitoes. I've never even met a magician in Minnesota that does tricks with mosquitoes. Right? <laughs> and they confess publicly at this point, Exodus 8, 19, they said to Pharaoh, this, this is the finger of God. This is God at work. Don't leave the third plague in. And the magicians, like, they, they recognize God's sovereignty over everything. This is God at work. Fourth plague. Swarms of flies. Okay, bigger bugs. Again, this is like the th second group of three. It happens in the morning. There's this huge infestation of swarming insects so enormous in the Hebrew that they are everywhere, indoors and out, constantly on everyone. You wouldn't be able to put a foot down without stepping on a whole bunch of them. Kind of like about every, I don't know, seven to 12 years in Duluth, army worms. Right? They're kind of everywhere. And especially significant in this plague is they're, they're not where the Israelites live, right? That he's not doing to his own people what he would do to the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh offers his first concession. He says, take a religious holiday, but stay inside Egypt, verse 25. He's offering like a real clearly defined option to the Israelites in exchange for relief from the flies, but he knew what he was offering was not what they were asking for. He's bargaining. It's his attempt to save face. He goes, okay, go worship, but you can't leave. You, you realize bargaining with God is pretty much always about trying to alleviate the pain that we're in without giving in. When you bargain with God, it's almost always about, I want to alleviate the pain in my life not really give in. God, if you get me out of this, I'll follow you anywhere. And God's thinking, hey, I've heard that before. 
Pharaoh said the same thing. It's not really about following him anywhere. The tendency to bargain with God is to give him the bare minimum of ourselves, to save face. It's about alleviating pain rather than getting life to the fullest extent possible. So then we see Pharaoh offer a second kid concession when that doesn't work, a temporary trip into the wilderness. Verse 28, chapter 8. I'll let you go offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. The flies are everywhere. Moses could have thought, hey, dude, we got a deal. Moses had no idea how far this was going to go. And Pharaoh's words, now pray for me, suggest that this plague had touched him personally to an extent the prior three maybe had not. People were being driven crazy by the flies. Life had become intolerable. But look at immediately after the flies are gone, what he does in verses 30 through 32. He says, you know what? Forget it. Now that the flies are gone, you're slaves. I wonder how often we make a promise to God and then renege in exactly the same way. I wonder how often we make a promise to God and then we pull back in exactly the same way. Fifth plague, death of livestock. Animals were a treasured value asset. They were closely interrelated to the welfare of humans. They were carriers of the divine presence. For them to like lose livestock while the Israelites retained all theirs, that was a nationwide humiliation. It's kind of like the Vikings beating the Packers. Whew. This plague, God sets the time when it's going to happen. It's interesting. In this plague, when you're reading it, God sets the time. There wasn't that long ago, the second plague, where he allowed Pharaoh to set the time. All right? In the midst of this economic disaster, Pharaoh has to decide for himself whether or not the same thing happened to the Israelites. All over Egypt, bodies of cows and horses and goats and other animals are rotting in the sun. And so they send spies out to look and see where the Israelites live, and they find that none of the Israelite livestock died. Continuing to resist is the most foolish thing Pharaoh could do. But by now, his heart is so entrenched that he couldn't do anything else. Have you ever found yourself doing exactly what you know is wrong, saying exactly the thing that you know you shouldn't say, but you're so entrenched in that way of doing it that you just can't get out? Am I the only one that's ever found myself there? If you're not raising your hand, it's because you're a liar today. We have all found ourselves there, right? We live there. Well-worn paths of disobedience. Well-worn paths of ignoring God's voice. Well-worn paths of worshiping something other than God eventually become impossible to leave or deviate from that path. A well-worn path becomes a well-worn path and you can't get off it. And now we're halfway through the plagues. It's going to get a whole lot worse. Plague six, festering boils. You guys enjoying this today? This is amazing. One of the things that stands out to me in plague six is it's the last plague where the magicians appear. They're not mentioned any other time in Exodus. They're not mentioned in the entire Pentateuch for that matter. We never hear from them again. Why? I think maybe two reasons. 
The first is to show that Pharaoh probably used the magicians as advisors. For them, the magical, the medicinal, and the miraculous were all really closely linked. Anything the magicians could do to alleviate the plague or show it to be something that they themselves could also do on a small scale helps to foster Pharaoh's resistance to Yahweh. We don't hear from them again. And I think the second reason is the physicians couldn't heal themselves of the boils. This is the actual plague that comes, the way that we define the word plague. The power of God over their power is obvious. Their tricks eventually prove impotent in the face of real power. All the things that they can do became more and more impotent in the face of real power. I wonder for you and I, how our ways of kind of sidestepping what God's doing with our little tricks, could be emotional, could be intellectual, could be real little physical things. I wonder if our way of somehow try to sidestep what God might be speaking to us, when it becomes totally impotent, it doesn't work anymore, then what do we do? Well-worn paths of disobedience are really hard to get off of. Seventh plague, hail. In the morning, this is the beginning of the seventh, eighth, and ninth plague. This is where things get more intense. In every one of these plagues, God says, it will be unlike anything Egypt's ever seen or will ever see again. It's like this is the worst of the worst of the worst in this beginning set of three. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they might worship me. It's starting, if you want to look, read along with me, chapter nine, starting in that verse 13. It happens in the morning again, at the very beginning. Now, people have wondered how long the plagues went on, and we know that the first one lasted seven days. There's a really good chance that these were about a week or sometimes more than a week apart. And it just kept coming and coming and coming. For how many months is that? Scholars think maybe it was somewhere between four and six months that these things were just devastating them again and again and again. Let my people go, they will worship me in the morning. Verse 14, or this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you, against your officials and your people, so that you may know, this is the reason for the whole thing, that there is no one like me on the earth. Yahweh is saying, I'm making you, I'm introducing myself to you and who I am. You've mistreated my people, and now you're going to get the full brunt of that. The intensity is getting turned up. Verse 15, for by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that wiped you off the earth. The sovereign one could have wiped the, all of Egypt off the face of the earth at any time. The earlier plagues, are God, God's saying the earlier plagues, they're examples of me holding back. They're examples of me going easy on you. They're examples of me giving you a chance to repent. Like These are tough things. Verse 16, but I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's making his reputation known. He's introducing himself. Verse 17, you still set yourself up against my people and will not let them go. This is a confrontation between the only divine one and the human who's pretending to be divine, who's mistreating Yahweh's people. Therefore, verse 18, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that's ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. This is as bad as a storm ever gets. 
And look at, he gives them a way out. Verse 19, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a, a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. He's giving a way out for those who will listen to him. Verse 20, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. So there's something about believing God enough to actually take some precautions. I think you can actually do that without actually putting faith in God. Verse 26, the only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. As a result of this, then, we see this momentary, albeit insincere, repentance of Pharaoh. Verse 27, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay. Moses goes out in the midst of the thunder and hail. Apparently, he wasn't afraid hail would hit him. And he goes out and he prays, and the whole thing stops. Without going into much depth... The reason I say that Pharaoh's repentance was insincere is nothing in here in the Hebrew language indicates he was actually sorry or he was seeking forgiveness. He was under the pressure of the worst, most damaging storm they'd ever encountered. He's simply asking for relief. And when the storm lets up, you see how insincere the repentance is. When Pharaoh saw, verse 34, that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not let the Israelites go. Real repentance means that we actually change. It's not repentance to say, I'm sorry. It's not repentance to go, would you let the pressure off? The Greek word that's translated repentance in the New Testament, that 23% of the Bible, is pronounced metanoia. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. And it means to actually change. I've heard that the Roman army used it as a, as a command to do an about face. That's real repentance. And that's why I say it was momentary, albeit insincere. His heart is so calloused. He can no longer take a wise course of action. Just let them go and prevent further destruction of your land and possessions. God is now using Pharaoh's hardness of heart against him and against his people. Well-worn paths of disobedience, of clinging to idols, are really hard to walk away from. God's using this, their pride, their willfulness, their cultural assumptions, their emotional tendencies. He's using it against them. And the question becomes, who's enslaved now? Who's enslaved now? You see, Bob Dylan sang it really well you got to serve somebody. There's no human. There's nothing created by God that doesn't serve something. The question is, who will be your master? Who will you serve? For Pharaoh, it's still him. Eighth plague, locusts. Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. Rhetorical question. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It highlights the, the pride and the arrogance that we've seen since chapter one. 
If you refuse to let them go, I'll bring locusts into your country tomorrow. It's going to be horribly devastating. Look at what Pharaoh's officials say to him in verse 7. Pharaoh's officials say to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? They're saying, Moses, how, Moses, because of Moses in their lives, the Egyptians are being denied their freedom. They're trapped in a situation they don't want to be in. Those who had enslaved the Israelites, keeping them trapped, denying them freedom, are now getting a taste of what it means to be enslaved. They're being held against their will by an opponent. What God did to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians in general and to Egypt's gods was to show them their own powerlessness and helplessness, to expose their pride as empty arrogance, to shame them forever in this process, to humiliate them. And at the end, we actually see Pharaoh getting to the point. He realized the plagues are leading to death, not merely inconvenience or hardship, but he's enslaved by his own hardness of heart. Ninth plague, darkness, the last one we'll talk about today. To fully appreciate this plague, we'd have to turn off all the lights in this room. I did not ask them to do that. I thought it might make some people squeal. And then everybody's phones would come out. We have so much technology, like we're never in the dark. But in this culture, to have all the lights go out completely to the point where they're, feel, they're crawling on the ground, they're feeling their way along. They don't know how to get where they want to be. They're completely blind. Three days without light. Widespread panic would ensue. Every one of us would realize that the natural order of the world had been overturned, that a basic component of life has been removed. Long before the three days were up, people would begin to understand the consequences. If this keeps up, there's not going to be any food because food need, plants need sunlight to live. Animals are going to begin to die because the food chain requires the plants. We will die because everything we live on requires the plants. We will die if this keeps going. Total darkness brings like a sensory deprivation leading to all kinds of disorientation and physical distress. You think it's bad just having clouds for three days in a row? Just imagine having no light, no electricity. And John highlighted that this is last plague. God says, let there be darkness. You're meant to remember a time that God said, let there be at the very beginning. Like decreation has had its full effect at this moment. So how does Pharaoh respond? Look at what he does. Chapter 10, verse 28. If you still got your Bibles open, this is remarkable. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Rather than looking at the issues and trying to address the real issue, what Pharaoh does is, I don't ever want to see you again. I want to remove the messenger so I'm no longer being reminded of my pride. Do I need to apply that one to our lives? How often, rather than just addressing the issue with friends and neighbors and having real discussions, do we just say, I just need them out of my life. I don't want to hear about the issue anymore. I know, they get really mad at me for not trimming those bushes that are right next to the road so that when they pull out, they can see down the road. I get really mad at them complaining about it. Go trim them yourself. I don't want to see my neighbor anymore. Why don't I just trim the bushes? Why don't I just address like the real issue? How long would that take? Do you see what we do? You and I do the exact same thing. 
I don't want to be reminded of my pride. I don't want to be reminded of my disobedience. We try to shut the messenger up. I'm not going to pay any attention to what God wants. Stop talking to me about it. The first nine plagues are God showing his sovereignty over Egypt, over its king, over its people, over its environment, over its gods. There's one sovereign God. Yahweh is his name. There's one deserving of our worship. Yahweh is his name. And in the person of Jesus, we see Yahweh step into our planet and show us how dearly and deeply loved we are, how treasured we are, how completely cared for we are, and what it looks like to live a life in submission, fully surrendered to that love. Let's go back to where I started, John chapter one. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. You're meant to remember the ninth plague. When God removes his hand, it's all darkness, and we're bumbling around in the dark, stepping on Legos with our bare feet. It's painful. That was the most painful thing I could think of, sorry. <laughs> I still remember that when my kids were little, and I'd go up, and I didn't turn on the lights, and it's long before I could say, Siri, turn on the lights. Oh, there's the Legos. Go down to verse nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but even his own did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's my invitation this morning. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like Pharaoh. Be like John. Don't let the hardness of your heart enslave you and eventually destroy you. You gotta serve somebody, and so come to the one who can set you free as you surrender to his love and power. Over the years of being a human, I've watched people, myself included, dip their toe into repentance. And the moment the pain goes away, they go right back to what they were doing. Here's my invitation. Like, ask God to help you actually repent to do an about face. There's stuff he wants to do in our lives that's incredibly powerful. There's a life he wants to give you and I that is absolutely amazing. The rest of Exodus is gonna point us towards that. But you have to be willing to begin at the beginning, which is to repent, to listen and to repent. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna lead us in a ministry time. We're gonna take some of these things that I talked about and actually more more tangibly, more personally, uh, apply them to our lives. And so ministry time at the vineyard begins by everybody standing up, and then for some cool reason, we dim the lights. <laughs> I think it makes it more romantic. I mean more repentant or something, right? The worship team's gonna come up here. If you're on the ministry team, you can begin to make your way up here. And I'm gonna lead us in some prayers of repentance. And here's what I want you to do. As I'm praying, there's gonna be moments in my prayer where you feel like something's tugging on you to respond. Here's what I want you to do. Don't be like Pharaoh. Respond, right? When you're like Pharaoh, you're saying, when something starts tugging on you, what you say is like, uh, there's other people that are worse off than me. They need to get the prayer. That's bull pucky. That was a pastor filter. It was kicking in at that moment. <laughs> Right? There's nobody in this room worse off than you. 
We're in the same boat. Like this is something that's so vitally important to us. As I'm praying, you'll feel a tug from time to time. That's the Holy Spirit. Just open yourself up to that and ask God to meet you in that moment. And this isn't an individualistic thing where it's just you and God all by yourself like in your car with the windows rolled up. You're in community. If you're online, there's a place where you can click and you can get prayer. You're in community with people who want to see God come and move in our lives together as community. And so allow yourself to get prayed for by them. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now? When I'm praying like this, I often open up my hands because I want my... I want my whole posture, my whole spirit to become receptive to what God's doing. And so this is a way that I, my body leads the way. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence, the presence of Yahweh, the presence of the resurrected Christ. We invite your presence right now into our midst. And we say, Father, we have bought into the lie of the snake that we're the ones in charge, that we get to decide everything for ourselves, that we're in control of our minds and our bodies, we're in control of the whole thing, and we're the only ones we serve, and we have found ourselves enslaved. If it's hard for you to say, and we found ourselves enslaved, try this prayer. Lord, show me how I'm enslaved to the serpent. Show me how that's true. And then God will highlight things. He's really good at this. Every time I say, God, is there anything in me that you'd like to adjust? That's like the only prayer he answers every day. It's a great way to start. Father, is there anything in my life that you want to address? Anything that's like putting a wedge between you and I? Anything that's in the way? Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you speak to each one of us? And Lord, would you give us a desire to not just dip our toe, to not be like Pharaoh and dip our toe in repentance, but to actually turn to you? For those who received him, the Apostle John wrote, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive him is to say, I want you in my life. In the same way that I took those communion elements and they became a part of my being, I want you to be a part of my being, God. Would you, I receive you, I welcome you, I want you. And then to believe is to begin to orient my life around him. When I believe something is true and it works, I actually walk it out. I believe my car is going to work when I go out there. The battery is not going to go wong, wong. It's going to start up and it's going to take me home or to lunch or it's going to be really good. Lord, I believe that when I put my faith in you, my confidence, my trust, that you are really good. If you've never done this kind of thing before, it begins really simply like this. Jesus, thank you for your life and your death on the cross for me. Thank you for the way that you invite me into life that's truly life. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I want to experience what you have. If this is true, I want in. 
And so, Lord, would you fill me with your presence? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you help me become the kind of person who is deeply rooted in you and lives that kind of life that you speak about over and over and over again? Holy Spirit, come. So as God is bringing things to mind, idols that you cling to for security, maybe even places where you have been yeah, actually making sacrifices to that idol in your time and in your spending and the way that you live life and the way that you approach relationships, you've actually sacrificed to try to get that good life and it's not giving it to you. Rather than surrendering to the one who's the author of life. As God's highlighting things, would you come forward? Just right now, and allow these folks to pray with you. And if you prayed that prayer of surrender, thanking Jesus for his life and his death on the cross and inviting him to fill you, if you prayed that prayer of surrender for the first time or, or maybe in a recommitment kind of way, come forward right now. These guys would love to pray for you. And we have a little gift that we'd like to give you about just following Jesus. It's a Bible and a couple little things that just talk about how to live this out in a really powerful way. If that's you, come on forward. Holy Spirit, thank you for the scriptures and the way you speak to us from these scriptures about our lives. The way you continue to instruct us from these old stories in Exodus. And the way we learn from Pharaoh a really good example of what not to do. Would you give us a courage and a strength and a faith to pivot and turn towards you right now? All right, the team behind me is going to lead us in worship. Come on forward and get some prayer. We would love to pray with you. I think God wants to do some reorientation in many of our lives. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today. Hang out in here as long as you want to.